culture. 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 Equality, equity, and justice. Mm -hmm. Religion as culture. It's hard to define. Belonging. I would get passed over. Conflict. Conversation. There are conflicts that happen. It's life. Celebrate differences. Compromise. Cooperation. Culture. Mm -hmm. Culture and belonging. Welcome to the Culture and Belonging podcast from Troy University and the Office of Institutional Research, Planning, and Effectiveness. I'm Rich Leday. And I'm Wendy Broyles. According to a recent report from the U.S. Surgeon General, there is an epidemic of loneliness in the United States. That report, titled Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation, finds that even before the COVID-19 pandemic, about half of all U.S. adults reported experiencing measurable levels of loneliness. Our guest today is Kim Serrano, director of the Center for Inclusion and Belonging, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit. We'll discuss the Surgeon General's report, as well as the Center for Inclusion and Belonging's own report and research tool they've developed, known as the Belonging Barometer, the state of belonging in America. The Belonging Barometer report points to belonging as a factor in outcomes as diverse as job retention, general and mental health, and satisfaction with one's local community and life in America. Kim, as I understand it, your report from the Center for Inclusion and Belonging and the Surgeon General's report on loneliness both came out within the last year. I assume it was no coincidence that these two reports were published now and published so close together. They, they have both come out this year, um, and our report came out in March, and I, I believe the, the Surgeon General's um, advisory on loneliness was in May of this year. And we were in touch with the Surgeon General's office in um, reviews of, of our study, and the timing really speaks to the, the fact that the trends that we are observing and looking at are very, very similar in the Surgeon General's advisory. They were drawing attention, rightly so, to some, some trends that we're seeing around isolation and social connection and loneliness, where, uh, you know, for example, we're, we're seeing rates of loneliness rising over the last 30 years. And that loneliness is one of those kind of core, core prongs that we think about as we're thinking about belonging and how to measure it. So as I mentioned, you know, we're looking at um, social connection, psychological safety, and that co-creation and agency is these three prongs of belonging. And uh, social connection is sort of really that, that other other side of the coin of loneliness. And so we were really excited to see the Surgeon General drawing attention to these trends and to um, inviting folks to think more about what these mean. For context, an advisory from the Surgeon General's office gets issued uh, for an issue that is of public health concern. And they've used it for things like HIV AIDS in the past, as well as smoking. So it's putting loneliness right up there on the same level as some of these other issues that have historically advisories have been issued about. And I believe the Surgeon General's report equated loneliness to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It did. And, and, you know, one of the things that they're looking at is in terms of overall life impact, it can, it can have that same kind of effect. 
and this, you know, this really speaks to something that, that we saw um, in our belonging barometer study as well, which is that there are physical health correlations that we see with, you know, when, when um, folks are reporting high belonging, they're also reporting better health outcomes. So less stress, less pain, better emotional health. But they're also reporting greater trust in their neighbors and in their local communities. And this is a really important relationship that, you know, I think the Surgeon General report also speaks to, which is, you know, when we see prolonged loneliness, that they can also yield a kind of a hypervigilance or suspicion of neighbors um, or of other people or of, of the unfamiliar. And so that actually is challenging for any kind of civic health. So, so both on the individual level of our individual health, we see a strong relationship between belonging and social connection and, and physical health outcomes, but we also see it as civic health, where, where social connection is strong, where belonging is strong. You know, we see, we see folks more engaged in their communities, more prone to civic participation, which is really essential to, to getting things done and having healthy local communities. Well, you even uh, this is even brought up in uh, in your report. I mean, this is like, yeah, civic health is one thing, but this is a this is the the fundamental part of the fundamentals that make our country work. Mm -hmm. That's what this democracy requires: civic engagement. Democracy requires this kind of group orientation towards solving collective problems. You know, so that I mean, that really that jumped out at me was just that belonging is vital for American society. It's not just individual health. It's not just the functioning of our workplace. But this idea, you know, social cohesion, it's expanded to, you know, this interacts with the very functioning of our way of government. One of the things that I think is, is also kind of counterintuitive about belonging is that fostering that sense of high belonging helps us as human beings be better equipped to tackle bigger problems. And there's so many challenges that we're facing, whether that's on the individual level or the you know, family level, community level, but zooming out to kind of national and, and global level. And so being able to invest in building belonging can be essential for us being able to tackle the kinds of big challenges that, that we face. Well, and I think that, you know, the the deeper we are into the exclusion side of the scale, the harder it is for us to, you know, to voice our concerns in a constructive manner. You know, if we don't feel like we're be we belong to the community, if we don't feel like we belong to the group, it's going to be harder for us to involve ourselves in collective decision-making processes. It's going to be a little bit more difficult for us to, you know, to engage in the type of civic discourse that's going to lead to cooperation instead of conflict. Mm -hmm. So I was just thinking maybe now's a good time to circle back and say, tell us a little bit about who you are and this group that you work with. So I, I'm the director of the Center for Inclusion and Belonging at the American Immigration Council. And I'm part of a team that has been trying to understand the nature of belonging, what it looks like, what it means, how we build it in community, how we help individual folks feel like they belong, and then in turn, how to measure it. And mm -hmm. so together with partners at an organization called Over Zero, we set out to say, let's let's try to bring together the, the latest science uh, around 
belonging, what it is, how we define it, and see if we can uh, bring together a measure that can be readily deployed and, and easily used, you know, both in academic contexts, but as well outside of academic settings by community groups, by employers, to be able to kind of get a sense of what is the state of belonging uh, and how can we build more of it. I love it so love much. It. So the name of the show is Culture and Belonging, and usually one of the things we get a guest to do is help us define those terms. So could you give us some thoughts about how you define culture and then how you define belonging? Sure. You know, when I think about culture, I think about sort of big C and little c culture. When I think about big C culture, I'm thinking about, you know, things like the um, culture that's attached to to gender or to, to race or ethnic background, some of those kinds of things that, that get talked about. And then little C culture, I think about as ways of being in the world. And so that that may be the culture of a family or the culture of a workplace or the culture of a group. And all of that kind of is, is culture. When I think about belonging, the definition that, that I uh, gravitate towards is that belonging is about fit and about finding fit, whether that's fit with uh, other people that can be fit in place. So we can feel belonging and attachment to, to sites and to locations, but we can also feel it with people. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the difference between non-belonging and unbelonging. Yeah, you know, this is um, something that has come up in our work uh, to try to measure belonging and to try to come up with a way of kind of wrapping our arms around this concept of belonging that, that I think can feel really ambiguous. And, you know, one of the things that, that we learned in, in bringing together some of the, the best science um, around the nature of belonging was that it's not a, like a light switch. It's not sort of something that you sort of turn on or off. You either belong or you don't. But actually, it's more of a spectrum. And along that spectrum, we've got kind of high belonging on one end and exclusion on the far other end. And then in between, there's actually a range of different experiences that we called uh, belonging ambiguity or belonging uncertainty. So things like, I'm not sure if I belong or I'm, I'm not sure what my place is, uh, kind of fall in the spectrum. And a couple of those experiences are, are what you just named, Rich, of non-belonging and unbelonging. And unbelonging is an experience of, of having had belonging, but lost it. So that might be an experience of, I knew what it felt to belong in this context, but something changed, something shifted. And so someone who's feeling unbelonging, there may actually also be some loss and some grief and some other um, emotions and experiences tied up in that. Whereas uh, what we've termed non-belonging on the spectrum is uh, just never having known belonging in, in say a given context. And I think it's really important to distinguish between those two. And, and I'm really glad, Rich, that, that you brought that up and asked about it because when we think about designing interventions that can create belonging, we may actually need different interventions for someone who's experiencing non-belonging versus someone who's experiencing unbelonging because those are actually different experiences. That makes sense. Yeah, I was telling Rich that I had to wrap my head around it. Like, unbelonging is to non-belonging as uninvited is to not invited. <laughs> like, oh, 
<laughs> really big difference. At Troy University, we're in a, you know our, our higher education setting. Um, we just went through. You know, we're on our first week of courses, classes starting, and, you know, the week before class starts, we do onboarding with new professors, right? So they have never belonged to Troy University. So they're new. We've got, I think, pretty good process by which we onboard professors, but I don't know that we are quite capturing the extent to which we're achieving belonging, a feeling or perspective of belonging with our new with our new faculty, right? That's extremely useful, I believe, if administrators are trying to cultivate a culture of belonging, is to disentangle what this, you know, what this concept actually means, you know, in addition to how do we measure it so that we can design interventions moving forward. I think that's such a great point, Rich, but it, it really speaks to how dynamic belonging is in that somebody can feel belonging ambiguity but then and then and then shift into unbelonging and then shift to high belonging and and that we can and feel differently about belonging in different life settings too so so that is definitely something that we've been seeing bear out in the research is is that it's not static in the context you've described with incoming professors makes a lot of sense to me well and so one of the findings from the report that you guys put out is that belonging is attainable. So we'd, we'd like to hear some some thoughts about what what are the interventions that are suggested? What are the ideas that, that are, are brewing from the results of this report to, to say, okay, well, these are the things that we can actually put into practice and we can, you know, survey our people and have conversations and focus groups and whatever else. So what do you mean belonging is attainable? How? You know, one of the things that we were seeing from taking the belonging barometer and doing a national survey with it and kind of taking the pulse on the state of of belonging in America is that, you know, a first step to being able to build belonging is, is we need to know where we're starting from. So that was really, really important for us was to say, you know, what, what what's our current state? What's our baseline? And so, so being able to start with a baseline and just start by measuring and that, that tool that we've designed, the belonging barometer, we crystallized all of the, all of the sort of great best, you know, current science we could find into 10 questions that could be used and applied in a you know, survey format to, you know, to evaluate, to just get that baseline data of say, like, what is the current state of belonging in our workplace or on our campus or in our community, in our church? And then with that information, then we can begin to think and explore, okay, what are the interventions, you know, as we're learning where our, our, our group is at? How do, how do we begin to think about moving on the spectrum, like you had talked about, Rich? And some of the kinds of things that um, can, can be next steps, you know, include being able to, to make sure that folks can see and be seen. So, you know, one of the, the core components of belonging that we've been uh, understanding is around psychological safety, which is the ability to be one's authentic self without fear or judgment and an important step to being able to, to build psychological safety um, is, is seeing people, as well as being able to affirm and be affirmed in their potential. And, and that helps to buoy a part of belonging that we 
call co-creation and agency. So that ability to contribute fully and participate, as well as being able to do things that help, help people know they're part of something bigger. They're part of a team, they're part of a community. And that's, that's a really important part of experiencing social connection. But, you know, building from there, there's so many places that, that we can start, whether that's intimate relationships, like friends and family, in the workplace, local community. Um, once you've got that sense of, of, hey, like, what's what's the baseline? What's the current state of belonging? Well, because belonging is, is something that occurs in different settings. Right. And this is something that you draw out um, very, very clearly in the report. And, and you just spoke about this, this idea of psychological safety. You know, I may feel psychologically safe in my home with my family, but that may not necessarily translate into, you know, that feeling of safety or not, you know, in the broader community, for example. And even within the broader community, I might feel a certain way inside my church that I don't feel in the broader community. Mm -hmm. That could be very different than the way I feel inside the workplace, you know. So I think thinking, well, talking about belonging as this multifaceted and, and multi-domain, it exists in, in a in multitude of domains. So that's part of the nuance that's needed in this type of conversation, I believe. You know, one of the things when, when we were designing and preparing the tool, tool was trying to think through, hey, what are the life settings that, that we should look at? Because, and it kind of speaks to the importance of measuring belonging and taking that pulse because exactly like you're saying that, you know, someone might feel belonging in one life setting, but not be experiencing it another. And so we were really intentional and deliberate in the national survey that we did of trying to take this pulse across different life settings. So, so in that particular instrument, we asked people about belonging in the workplace, um, belonging with friends, belonging with family, belonging in the local community and belonging in the country. And what was really interesting is we did see some variation across those life settings. We, we saw, you know, about two thirds of Americans in our survey were reporting a lack of belonging in at least one life setting. So 64% in the workplace, 68% in the country, and about 74% were reporting a lack of belonging in their local community. So that was really helpful to, to um, begin to understand and unpack a little bit. I don't want to say that's really cool because it's not, but it's just fascinating to hear the, the differences between the different life places. It's really cool that scholars can study this stuff, but the <laughs> findings are not that cool. No, right, know? right. It's, it's really depressing, yeah, that's but right. it's also fascinating. But I don't know how much of this was really shocking to social scientists, for example, people who have studied, you know, I have a background in civic engagement. In, in political science and also in sociology, there's a, the concept of social capital. Mm -hmm. uh, social capital being a combination of networks and your ability to trust other people. And that is something that has been declining for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and scholars have been studying this. And I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of articles written with the word social capital in the title. Mm -hmm. You know, So I don't know if, if, if this is too shocking to scholars, but this 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 report is very it's very disturbing. But there's still the silver lining, and I'll go back to belonging is attainable. Yeah. We we can do this, people. <laughs> we can do this. And it's dynamic. It changes. So 
exactly like you're saying, the good news is that when we know where the current state is at, then we can shape our interventions to be responsive and, and belonging doesn't stay in one place. You know, we, we can turn the tide upon that. One thing that I have seen in that data too is if you're someone who's feeling some of that belonging ambiguity, you know, in, in, in a life setting, that, that sense of like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I belong here, or I actually am feeling outright excluded uh, in, a, in a particular setting. This data tells us you're not alone. And in fact, where two or three or four are gathered, the majority uh, you know, of, of those folks may actually be feeling a lack of belonging given, given some of the trends we're seeing. So I think that that's also a really important part of the story to keep in mind is that this need to belong is, is something that our brains are wired for, something that each of us as human beings needs. Something you, know, you need rich and, and Wendy, you need and I need, we all need to feel that sense of belonging. And so when we see that it's, it's low um, in some, some different ways, there's a role that each of us can play. Another finding that I'd like to point out and talk a little bit more Belonging and diversity are interdependent. Oh, nice one. Could you tell us a little more about that? This was um, an interesting finding to us as well in looking at the, the state of belonging survey, that, that national representative survey that we did. You know, what we saw is that there's a really close relationship between diversity and belonging. And that, you know, for example, folks who were recording uh, more diverse friendships and high belonging were also recording less fear of demographic change. And so we, we see these um, kind of positive relationships and positive correlation where belonging and diversity exist together. And I think it's important to remember that we can find belonging with people who are like us. And our research is actually suggesting that the highest belonging is actually found when people are inter interacting across different experiences and that that's actually the, the sort of optimal tradition. Um, and that is really interesting. Um, it has all sorts of implications across, um, across life settings. And um, I think is, is a really uh, interesting finding for us as we think about what does it look like to to be belonging may also mean increasing diversity and, and ways people can interact across diversity. And when you've got diversity, it's really important to make sure you're prioritizing belonging as well. Looking at that relationship between diversity and belonging, I think that offers us opportunities, I believe, especially you know here in a higher education setting. I mean, we're a pretty diverse university. Most most universities are. Yeah. Right. So I think that offers administrators and faculty members an opportunity that we should explore. Mm -hmm. There's no question in that. That was just that was just I agree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I really appreciate what you said, Rich, about this is this is an area where we definitely think there's there's a lot of learning still to be done to, to understand these these relationships and what it looks like in different settings to prioritize kind of achieving that kind of high belonging and interdependence together. And, you know, it's it's one of those findings that I, I think can also feel counterintuitive to some folks. It, it, that that sense of, you know, I would I would expect I would I would feel that high belonging, someone else who feels just like me, but actually the deepest, that that sense of being seen 
with someone who has a different experience actually can be an even deeper and more resonant experience of belonging. And that's that's certainly something that I, I, I've seen bear out in the data, but, but also bear out um, anecdotally um, in experience as well. Well, and I'm thinking too about about the importance of identity, right? And even personality. So I think that maybe, and I have, you know, I haven't tested this hypothesis, but maybe anecdotally, I would say, I, I think there's certain people who are more accepting of diversity. And maybe those are the type of people who are also more inclined to feel like they belong, you know? So I think maybe there's, you know, that, that again offers us an opportunity, not just for more research, but to probe into personality a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe to try to get to some of these, you know, root explanations for, you know, do some, are some people are just more accepting of diversity. How do we cultivate that acceptance? Because one thing we've, we've talked about, and I've tried to discuss this further, even with, with my peers, you have to want to see diversity as a good thing, mm -hmm. you know? Not everyone's raised to believe that way. You're in California, we're in Alabama, two very different states that are comprised of two very different groups of people, subgroups of people, you know? So I think maybe probing into the, you know, the individual psyche, that might offer us a way forward, you know? And, and especially if we're trying to design interventions or fi just figure out how to develop ways to create a culture of belonging yeah. at our institution. One element of, of diversity that I think is is really interesting to think about is we saw this relationship across different kinds of identity characteristics. So, so we looked at race and ethnicity, we looked at age, we looked at gender, um, socioeconomic status. And so when we're seeing this relationship with diversity, it's really about uh, experience across difference. And, you know, when I think about a college setting, there's so many kind of different experiences coming together on a college campus. And there, you know, there's also a, a lot of opportunities to foster a culture of belonging that, that extends beyond the, the, the walls of the campus to the broader community that, that a, a campus is part of. And, you know, one of, one of my favorite experiences of bridging across difference has really been around diversity and age. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a millennial and sometimes I, I consider myself a geriatric millennial on, on the older end. And I, you know, in the, in the pandemic got to know a few neighbors on my street who are my parents' age um, and a little bit older. They're baby boomers and they have been such a rich part of my community and my life, even though there's 20, 30 years of age difference between us and we get together and play cards and do dinners. And it's, it's been, I find a lot of belonging with them, even though there are years of difference between us. And so, so anecdotally, that's been one of sort of my my proof points around this experience of diversity and belonging. I love that. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because now you've got me thinking about something that I've seen in my own classes. I teach in-person classes, but I also teach a fair amount of my load is taught online. And I have noticed often I have students that are in their 40s and 50s. You know, I'm in my late 40s. But combined with high school students, for example, that are dual enrollment. And I'm, as you said that, I'm thinking about how rich those conversations have been mm. in the discussion boards in my classroom when there's greater age diversity. 
And it's not just, you know, the cranky old person telling those young kids how to act. You know, right. it's also the, you know, the younger generation explaining their preferences and saying, look, this is what I want out of public policy. I, I teach uh, American national government the class I'm teaching right now. And, I'm, and once you said that, I'm reminded of how much that age diversity actually creates a more rich conversation mm -hmm. about political matters. And I've seen that time and time again in all of my online classes. Yeah. So I appreciate that. We want to give you one last, like, open-ended, if there was anything that you wanted to make sure the audience hears today. Every guest gets a teaching moment. Yeah. What, what would the one thing be that you would want people to take away from this conversation? You know, I, I think one thing I, I would hope folks walk away with is an, an appreciation for what, some of what, you know, we're, we're seeing reflected in the State of Belonging survey about the fact that belonging is a, it's a basic human need, it, it really truly is something that all of us share. And it is part of our, our biology, it is, it is part of our anatomy and, and how, how we're wired. And ultimately, if, if there are folks listening who, who are feeling some ambiguity around that sense of belonging, that our, our data suggests they are not alone and that there are steps that we can take to, to reach out and to include folks um, and to build belonging. And that that's actually a really essential and important thing that we can do every day in our local contexts, starting, you know, from the simple steps of, you know, reaching out to somebody in your friends or family and checking in on them or being present, being intentional with people in your life. Um, and then it can go from there. What a takeaway. That's great. You are not alone. You are not alone. So thank you, Kim. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you both for creating the space and, and kudos for the conversations that you're catalyzing around intercultural competence at your university. It's so, so important. Our guest for this episode of Culture and Belonging has been Kim Serrano director of the Center for Inclusion and Belonging. We hope that you'll subscribe to the Culture and Belonging podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And get involved by tweeting us at BelongingPod. Give us your ideas on what cultural topics we should cover next. Your idea just might end up on the show. Culture and Belonging is produced by Troy University in the studios of Troy Public Radio by Austin Toy and Joey Hudson with help from Kyle Gassett. So until next time, I'm Wendy Broyles. And I'm Rich Lede, and this is Culture and Belonging. <laughs>